This is Richard Pothig with Chapter 19, saying goodbye on an autobiography on the sidewalks of New York. After the election, my next task was to prepare for the annual meeting of the Student League for Industrial Democracy. The meeting was to be held after Christmas 1948 on December 27th and 28th in New York City. The leadership from the Student League chapters in New York's area planned the meeting. They chose the Rand School of Social Science for their national meeting place. Harry Laidler and the board of the League were concerned that the Student League regained the strength it had in the student movement prior to World War II. Before the war, the Student League had, under Joe Lash's leadership, joined the United Front, which became dominated by the members of the Young Communist League. United Front leadership adopted policies close to the Communist line. The board of the League for Industrial Democracy, many of whom had experienced attempts at Communist takeovers in their unions, disavowed the Student League and pulled out its support. This brought on the collapse of the Student League. In the aftermath of World War II, returning GIs brought a wider perspective to the issues facing the United States. The organization of the United Nations and its presence in New York raised the consciousness of the American people to the realities of international politics. For most of its history, the Student League had followed the League in supporting largely domestic issues related to labor and public policy initiatives. The post-war leadership of the Student League saw the need for engagement with global issues and strengthening U.S. student participation in developing these policies. The December discussions of the Student League centered on the direction of policy recommendations and strategies for organizing around these issues on college campuses. In the interlude before the Student League meeting to add a flourish to an already eventful year, New York experienced one of the greatest snowfalls in its history. Jerry Pospisil, Dick Fotheringham, and I had planned for a Christmas vacation get-together in a downtown New York Rathskeller. Jerry was attending a college in upstate New York, and Dick had just gone to Worcester College. Dick was a member of the Student League at Worcester College, so I was looking forward to news about life on the campus since I had been away that semester. The snow began falling the night before our planned meeting at the Rascala. It fell steadily and heavy throughout the morning and the afternoon. By evening, the city was snowstruck and at a complete standstill. Buses had stopped on the street where their drivers had left them. No traffic moved anywhere in the city. The only transportation were the subways, and some of these lines were shut down. Jerry, Dick, and I managed to meet at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church and from there planned our strategy for getting to the Rascala. We caught the Lexington Avenue IRT, which was still operating, and we took it down to 14th Street. We walked the rest of the way through the snowdrifts. The Rascala was open and Jerry, Dick, and I spent an evening recounting all the year's previous experiences. When we emerged from the Rascala, we entered a New York one does not easily forget. All locomotion in the city was on foot. The streets where were normally crowded with cars and buses and trucks now were filled with people.
People greeted one another. People went out of their way to help each other. People exchanged stories with strangers of the things they had seen and experienced in the great snow of 1948. Then there was singing. New York had not heard so many voices raised in song since its beginning. The city had been transformed into a vibrant human community. still on the ground when the annual student league meeting was held after Christmas. Most of the delegates were from the New York metropolitan region. The next largest group was from the Midwest. A fraternal delegate, Joan Issa, from the Cooperative Commonwealth University Federation, the student affiliate of the CCF party in Canada, braved the snows to be with us. She extended an invitation to the Student League to send a fraternal delegate to the Third National Convention of the CCUF, which was to be held immediately following our meeting in Ottawa on December 29th and 30th. The resolutions finally passed by the Student League delegates after much discussion of global issues followed traditional League concerns. It was recognized that the current U.S. situation called for strengthening the stream which the New Deal had begun. The delegates voted for the repeal of the Taft-Hartley Act, which had been a retrogression from the 1930s labor legislation. The actions also called for increased participation of labor representation in the decisions of management similar to the co-determination policies being initiated in Germany. The delegates foresaw the need to expand the Social Security benefits and to initiate a system of national health insurance. They called for the development of a public housing program and the public ownership of public utilities and basic industries. These latter programs were encouraged by the success of the British Labour Party. In the area of foreign affairs, the delegates pushed for an open-door policy of the United States for displaced persons, the admission of Israel to the United Nations, and the German nationalization of the Ruhr. When the election for the national chairperson of the Student League was held, my name was put up for nomination. My presence in the League offices as student secretary during the fall and my trip to Saskatchewan gave me an edge in the election. The fact that I was a New Yorker also helped with votes from the New York City chapters. As national chair, the delegates ordered that I represent the Student League at the National Convention of the CCUF in Ottawa. The year ended in a flurry. Harry Laidler told me the League would cover my expenses on a trip to the CCUF Convention in Canada. He felt that it was essential that the Student League be represented and known to the Democratic Socialists in Canada. As it turned out, I was the only delegate from a student group outside Canada at the convention. After the Student League meeting show closed, I went home that night and packed for my trip to Ottawa. Early in the morning, I headed for Grand Central Station to make my second trip to Canada in that year. The journey was tiring after all the work at the Student League National Meeting. My reception by the CCUF delegates in Ottawa was especially heartwarming. They were particularly appreciative of the fact that I had been in touch with the CCF in Saskatchewan and that I had worked on a cooperative farm. That gained me my credentials. Among my Canadian friends, it was not odd that I was going to be attending a theological seminary. The English tradition of Fabian socialism 
had rubbed off on those in the CCUF movement. There was a strong undercurrent of religious socialism within the student movement in Canada. My Canadian friends expected that anyone who took their Christianity seriously would be in the struggle for social justice. An added benefit from my Ottawa visit was that I was provided hospitality by a CCF member of the Canadian Parliament, one of the few elected to the Parliament. Delegates to the CCUF convention had come from the provincial universities. The proceedings of the convention and its recommendations were serious business for them. There was a political reality to their discussions. They knew that they were acting on could actually happen and make it to the floor of the provincial parliaments, if not to their federal parliament. It made a great difference to the student group related to a political party with representation in the provincial and federal parliaments. To reinforce this relationship, the national leader of the CCF, M.J. Coldwell, a member of the federal parliament, spoke to the gathering about the crucial role of the student movement that it was providing in developing political leadership for the country. The Canadian experience with democratic socialism became crucial to me in the words which M.J. Colwell said about religion. In the realm of religion, we should remember that we cannot have an economic and social system that is moral and Christian unless we have the spiritual basis for such a system. As the great Lambeth and Amsterdam conferences have recently pointed out, the church too has a responsibility to lead in the fight for social justice through the preaching of the social gospel. After the convention, I stayed over a day at Ottawa and took a night train back to New York on New Year's Eve. The coach was virtually deserted. I got into New York in the late afternoon of New Year's Day. Thus began 1949. My return to Worcester in late January had all the feeling of an anticlimax. I could have graduated with the class of 1948 if I had wanted to expedite my education. Many of my close friends had been in that class. I had been with them since my entering Worcester in February 1945. I decided not to rush, but to graduate in 1949. It was a good decision. It had allowed me invaluable political experiences. My attention was now on finishing and preparing for my theological education. There had never been any doubt in my mind about the choice of Union Theological Seminary in New York. I had already read The Nature and Destiny of Man, Reinhold Niebuhr's magnum opus. Two of the professors in Worcester's religion department, John Hutchison and Robert Bontius, were Union Theological Seminary graduates and had introduced their classes to the thinking of Niebuhr. I had already experienced a solid Niebuhr reputation through Hilda Niebuhr, Reinhold's sister, in her work with the youth at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. As I reflected on the youth programs we did at MAPC under her tutelage, it was obvious she stood within the theological tradition of her brother. I had never considered Princeton Seminary, although most of the ministerial students from Worcester were going to go there. I sent an application to Yale Divinity School just in case I was not accepted at Union. I was reminded by my Yale-bound friends that there was a Niebuhr at Yale as well, H. Richard Niebuhr. I decided that Christian ethics was my field of study, and there was no more influential person in the field than Reinhold Niebuhr. He had come out of the Christian socialist tradition and was the most challenging theological thinker of our generation. 
I was also thinking of home. It would be good to be back in New York. I could keep an eye on my father, particularly if any special problems surfaced. Erna was still in high school. She had borne the heaviest burden of the family since she was 12. I needed to be around to give her what support I could. By now, I thought my father had become reconciled to my decision to enter the ministry. As I prepared for the next step in my education, I reflected about my time at Worcester. It had not been an easy choice, but it had been a wise one. My four years at Worcester had given me a different perspective on life. It had taken me out of my New York background and opened me to a different world. It had prepared me for a middle-class life. It had also provided me with a political perspective and an allegiance which I might never have found except in the political contrasts which were indigenous to Worcester and its Republican environment. During my last semester on campus, I came to appreciate the role which Worcester had in shaping my political perspective. Even though I differed with many people politically, there was an outgoing spirit which helped me take the edge off a deep-seated animosity. In the spring of my last semester, I invited the elected national leadership of the Student League for Industrial Democracy to meet in Worcester. At first, there was some resistance to meeting in such an out-of-the-way place as Worcester. Our executive committee arrived from our university chapters in New York City and Detroit. From those who came from New York, the Worcester experience was to be a revelation. For some of them, this was their first time on the campus of a denominational school. They were astonished at the friendliness with which people greeted one another. As I crossed the campus with Gus Papenick, one of the Student League's leaders, we were greeted with a volley of, Hi, ho, hey, how are things going, Dick? Gus looked at me unbelievingly. Do you know everybody on campus? Are people really that friendly? At the end of our meeting, which had set the Student League's agenda for the year ahead, these normally tough urban types expressed appreciation for having met at Worcester. The meeting of the Student League leadership at Worcester helped me reassess what my education at college had meant to me. Worcester had provided a unique social context in which to be educated. I had the chance to meet people from a variety of social backgrounds. Needless to say, there were not many inner-city students who attended Worcester. This changed slightly after the war when returning GIs attended Worcester under the GI Bill of Rights. Then some of my friends from Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church were added to the student body. During my years at Worcester, I had friends from among small-town Ohio folk and from the suburbs of Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus, and Pittsburgh. We differed in our view of the world. Most of them came from middle and upper middle-class settings. Their families were generally Republican in politics. Their views of working people and the poor were prejudiced, as were mine about the rich. It was their views of the working class that radicalized me. This radicalization was aided and abetted by the good teaching I found at Worcester. Early in my education, I discovered my particular strength was in history. I had already sensed this in high school. I had done well in Burnbaum's history courses, even though it never occurred to me that this might be pursued as a professional area of life. The High School of Commerce did not have a strong career development office. With a war brewing in Europe, advanced education for high school graduates was low on the administration's priority list. At Worcester, the world of history opened up to me in the teaching of Eileen Dunham. Her dynamic, 
teaching style convinced me that history was exciting and life-shaping, Dunham would come into the room, pull up a chair close to the desk, bend over her desk, and looking out at the class in rapid fire with hardly a glance at her notes, catch you up in whatever period of history she was portraying. Having lived through the Depression, I saw myself in the middle of the history of the working class and their struggle for a piece of life before they died and passed on. History had a new intensity for me. I found a worldview from which I could view all my other subjects, political science, sociology, philosophy, religion. My feeling for history brought me the one academic honor which I was to achieve at Worcester. I was elected to the Phi Alpha Theta, the History Honorary Society. Fortunately, the Department of Religion at Worcester had professors who were supportive of the world that was opening up to me. I had come away from my religious upbringing with a core religious belief that viewed the world in a wholeness. All human beings were part of the same family created by God. God had given us a world which we were to take care of and which we were to live peaceably. John Hutchison and Bob Bontheus in Worcester's Religion Department reinforced my basic religious instincts. They deepened my understanding of the scripture as viewed from a biblical criticism perspective. I absorbed from them the importance of a theological perspective as a place from which to view life, not in contradiction to history, but through history and its events. As the time for graduation drew near, I sensed that I was leaving behind a major part of my life. The past four years had been invaluable in my development. The educational climate at Worcester had opened me up to the wider world. I had been given many opportunities for leadership. I had been able to put together the finances through campus work, entrepreneurial ventures, and a scholarship to help me make it to Worcester without debt, except to the people who believed in me, all of which added up to giving me a sense of belonging to a place, as different as it was from the one from which I had come. I felt a sense of aloneness as graduation day came, Families and friends were gathering from everywhere to see their young people graduate. I knew my father would never make it to Worcester. I thought of my mother and of the agony which my leaving had brought to the family. My consolation was in having finished the course which I had taken. I was now ready to move on to the next step in the road. After graduation, the family of a fellow graduate offered me a ride back to New York. It was a welcome offer. It would take away some of the sadness. I felt leaving Worcester, I would not be doing it alone. As we drove away from the college, I looked back. I had a deep sense of appreciation and longing for the life which I had found at Worcester. <laughs>